my favorite moment in any class is where I state my opinion about something and some student just very dismissively says, no, that doesn't work because of blah, blah, blah. And everybody else nods and we just move on and like nobody even thinks about it. Those moments always make me really happy. Hello and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to try to figure out what is going on right now. I am Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. And one of these days, we are going to figure out how Adrian's last name is pronounced. German is a very, you know, confusing language for a lot of Americans, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's only perfectly phonetic, so how could you be expected (laughs) to figure this out? (laughs) Well, I have confirmed with you Daub, and then you say Daub. Yeah, you know, I mean, Waddle and Daub, right? I mean, it's like, I'm not going to, like, contest that. No, no, but I think this brings up an interesting point. Like, are you not correcting me because you want me to be comfortable, or are you saying your name incorrectly? I literally regard my name is having no more pronunciation. It is evacuated of a pronunciation. Whatever people <laughs> want to make of it, it is putty in their mouths. I'm happy with however they say it. Okay. Anyway. I also think that insisting on correct German pronunciation is just like, I don't know. There's a politics there that I'm not wild about. So, you know, whatever you want to call me, you can call me. But for the record, you are saying it correctly. Okay. I mean, I don't care so much about my being correct. It's just interesting to me for you to be really a very credentialed professor of German and yet to have no firm opinion on the subject of the pronunciation of your own name. Let's put it this way. I think the identity politics of being German are complicated at the best of times. So Mm -hmm. I just think there's very little that kind of makes me want to be a stickler about these things. And the kind of thing that I'm extremely happy when no one realizes I'm German. And normally when people find out, especially in New York City cabs, it turns out, whatever follows is not good. They're like, oh, you're German. And you're like, oh, this is going to (laughs) go one of two ways. And neither of them are really how I saw this evening going. Well, that's very illuminating. Let me ask you this. Would you consider using the German pronunciation of my name and calling me Laura? Oh, is that how you pronounce That's my name in, Laura, in German? Yeah, Laura. Yeah, I'm, Affect? I'm, I am. I'd be happy to. Is this a? Is this what Midwesterners do for role play? <laughs> no, and you're gonna feel really awkward when you said that because one of my students is German and called me that when she was kind of worked up about an idea and like working through something the other day, and I was like hugely endeared by the pronunciation in German. Yeah, Laura. Yeah. All right. Now that we've gotten to the bottom of that, we are not talking about German today. Never. (laughs) We're not going to talk about Adrienne's name at all anymore, ever. We are talking to the playwright Youngjin Lee, who is one of our colleagues at Stanford. And Adrienne, tell me a little bit about our conversation with Youngjin. So we spoke to Youngjin about the theater, which... Full disclosure, I am not a big theater goer, and especially this experimental theater is not a world I'm particularly familiar with. What drew us to her, I think, or drew me to her as a guest was that, you know, you and I have been embarking on this collaboration, Mm -hmm. making this podcast together. But at the same time, you know, I'm a cis gay man and you're a cis woman. There's a gendered aspect to kind of collaboration. Mm -hmm. There are questions of race around collaboration. We're also two white people with different white deriving identities. You know, you're an immigrant, I'm not. There's some intersectional layers there too. You know, the things that sort of were clear to us academically, right? The fact that collaboration 
or the lack thereof, or the making invisible of the collaborative nature of certain endeavors, is racialized, is gendered, is mm -hmm. also classed to some extent, mm -hmm. who's made visible at the end of a collaboration, and whose labor is kind of lumped in with all the rest. Mm -hmm. Making this podcast with our invisible third person, Megan, I think has really sort of gotten us to think about this question of collaboration. Now, you're a writer, and I would call myself a writer when I'm not an academic. And that's, of course, a place where the collaborative stuff can be easy to repress. I don't know if that's how you feel, but that's how I often feel. You know, people say, like, oh, I liked your article. I'm like, wow, gee, the, the line you're pointing to, an editor suggested to me, and then the copy editor or the mm. fact checker was like, what if you say it mm -hmm, this way, mm -hmm. right? But it's easy to forget that. Now, I've always loved theater, and I've studied opera quite a bit because it doesn't really allow you to do that, right? It's irreducibly collaborative. Mm -hmm. You can sort of pretend that you're watching a play by this person. But of course, if you think about it for more than a microsecond, it's clear that it's this big thing that a lot of people across really serious differences of experience and identity kind of collaborate mm -hmm. on. And yet at the end, right, someone goes home with the award and someone else mm -hmm. gets to turn mm -hmm. the lights off mm -hmm. and go home, right? Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about how you approached this topic and Young Jean, because I definitely think I came at it from a slightly different angle, which is even though I am a writer of fiction and nonfiction and things that are usually done solo. I'm also not such a theater outsider. I have a background in film production and I've done quite a bit of different kinds of film production. I grew up doing a lot of theater. I think you'll see this in my questions to Young Jean, but especially as an only child and someone who didn't have a lot of sort of collaboration and allyship in my early life, those experiences of sharing and artistic experience were really, really formative and important to me. So I was really excited to hear how Young Jean talked about that because she has so many fresh and critically aware and innovative thoughts and modes of collaboration in her own work. And especially around questions of gender and race, right? The fact For that, sure. I mean, how many controversies of the year 2020 can really be chalked up to the fact that there wasn't a good collaborative process in place. I don't want to chalk it up just to that. But I do think that there is something there where the things that a communal kind of production might help the most with, we actually aren't very good at mm -hmm. it. We're often very much primed not to communicate about and across these differences. Mm. And I think that too, Young Jean, she and whoever she has grouped around them have like reached for the hot button mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. any... The hot button is like her bestie. Right. It's not like she sort of ends up sometimes like going into difficult mm -hmm. to tread territory. She's like, hey, follow me and we'll we'll, mm -hmm. we'll go into this minefield together, right? And dance. Let's dance in the yeah, minefield. Let's dance in the minefield, naked. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes her, I think, a really good interlocutor about this question about how to communicate publicly about these most important issues. You know, this is a little bit of a tangent and I will bring it back to Young Jean, but I was just reading the most fantastic long-form article that went so deep into these issues of collaboration and crediting. And I just want to shout it out. It was called Jammed Up. It's by Lexis Olivia Ray and Samantha Halu Hernandez. And it was in The Land magazine, which is a local magazine in LA. And it was all about the controversy surrounding Squirrel, the restaurant. Right. Have you followed any of this? I it's have fascinating. a little bit, yeah. It's like a very long-form article and you really should like devote 30 minutes to it. But the TLDR is that... The white, very celebrated James Beard award winning chef of Squirrel borrowed quite a bit, let's say, from the labor of her Filipina chef de cuisine, who was mm -hmm. actually an LA native and did a lot more sort of hands on cooking. And it brings up in a really complex, fascinating way 
a lot of these issues of collaboration and crediting in a way that I would totally recommend. But to bring it back to our guest, Young Jean Lee, who is so fantastic in her own right. She's a playwright and a director and a filmmaker, as well as an associate professor in theater and performance studies at Stanford University, which I hear still exists. I mean, I haven't gotten too many updates recently, except for the ones where we don't know what we're doing. Yeah, my object permanence yeah. no <laughs> longer includes object permanence. It, it may have blinked out of existence. <laughs> Very large. Yes disappearing act. Young Jean's plays include The Shipment, Untitled Feminist Show, and Straight White Men, and in 2012, Charles Isherwood called her hands down the most adventurous downtown playwright of her generation. And like Adrian said, we talked about, you know, adventure, about massive midlife changing in careers and the terror and revelation that ensues from that. We talked about collaboration and creativity and a whole lot more. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us again. I hope you enjoy Adrian and my interview with Young Jean Lee. Enjoy. What was the theater catalyst moment for you? Just growing up in this small town with first-generation immigrant parents, like the idea that I could become any kind of artist just seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. And so I actually just ended up pursuing an academic path in English because that was the only thing that I was remotely good at was English. And so I was going to be a Shakespeare professor and I pursued that for almost 10 years of my life, actually. Right. And I was really, really unhappy. And I went to see a therapist and the therapist said, I'm just going to ask you a question. I want you to answer off the top of your head. Like, don't even think about what words are coming out of your mouth. And she said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a playwright. The thing that I always say is that really in that moment to be a serious Shakespeare scholar and say that you want to be a playwright is like being a veterinarian and then suddenly announcing that you want to be a dog. Like it's just such an embarrassing thing to say. But the therapist kept working with me on it and eventually it came out that I did have this secret desire to be a playwright that I had not even really been aware of. And I don't know. It was such a terrifying time. Taking risks in general is a very frightening thing. But if you have never really done it before and you're an adult and you don't have a history of taking risks, it just, there's all of this pressure that gets built up around it and you're very fearful. And I just kind of ripped off the Band-Aid and I left grad school and I moved to New York to be a playwright. Mm. After my first year in New York, I wrote and directed my first play and then you know, I was a playwright after that. Would you say that there are certain aspects of the kind of work you ended up doing that was kind of informed by the kind of abruptness of this shift? Let's say you made this admission to yourself 10 years earlier. Are there things about your plays that would be different or that you couldn't have done the way you did them in the event? Absolutely. When I left academia to become a playwright, there was a point in my first year where I, you know, didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. I just really didn't have anything after being in a pretty comfortable situation 
before that. Wait, grad school? No, no. In, I, oh. I was I was married and I was in grad school <laughs> okay. and my spouse was paying the rent and also working. And so okay. I was just in such a comfortable position. And then I went to just not having a place to live and not having a way to feed myself. Oh. And so there was something about making such an extreme leap. And also at that time I left the marriage, oh, wow. you know, which had also been another source of... So it was just, I lost everything that I had and that I had valued and worked for in this one moment. And I think there's something about the extremity of that and of surviving that, that made me much less afraid of risk moving forward. So I think that, you know, in terms of taking artistic risks, not being afraid to try things, going after things that I'm afraid of, all of that, I think stemmed from going through that experience, coming out the other side and realizing that that was the best thing I could have done in that moment. Mm. You know, so if I had had a trust fund and stayed in my marriage and that transition had been a much easier transition, I don't think it would have had quite the same impact on my work. It was like the fact that it was so extreme. I'm thinking of how powerful that moment is of you sort of admitting this deeply held fear and wish to this therapist? Mm -hmm. Like when you said that, do you remember how you felt like in your body when you made that admission? Oh, so mortified. So mortified. Like just, like it's not something, it didn't feel like something an adult would say. It just seemed so delusional and unrealistic. Mm. And, you know, and you know what academics are like. Do I? We really pride ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we really pride ourselves on a certain ability to see things clearly and critically and to have this babyish fantasy when I'm almost 30, you know, it actually felt pretty terrible in that moment. Like it was not, that was not like a happy moment for me. Like it took a long time for me to even admit that that was anything other than a mortifying admission. Right. I guess that's exactly kind of what my suspicion was and what I wanted to highlight for younger listeners is that like, I think it's easy to idealize that when these moments of truth come at us, they're like beautiful and soft, and we're just walking towards the light. And sometimes they're terrifying and disruptive and upending and really mortifying, like you said. And I think that's important to highlight. I've told the story before, but there is something that I've never said that I should say every time I tell that story, which is that even though things worked out for me, I was really lucky in a lot of ways. Right. And I think that I was coming into the situation with a lot of different types of privilege Mm -hmm. that helped things to work out in that situation. So it's now occurring to me that it's a little bit dangerous to tell that story without acknowledging those other Mm -hmm. factors as if, you know, anyone can suddenly become homeless and jobless and have no money and come out of it smelling like roses. Like that is definitely obviously not true. You kind of described the phase one of getting to New York and like not having a pot to piss in. And I'm assuming there was a lot of like, you know, ramen or cereal or something for dinner. Like I have lived, you know, parts of that story too. What was the phase two? What did that change into over time? I had, for me, what felt like sort of almost instantaneous success, success by my own standards at the time. I was going to ask you to define those. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I just, to me, the pinnacle of success was just to make something and put it out there. That was basically the greatest success I could hope for. Oh, and if you made something and put it out there and you had peers whom you respected, who appreciated what you did. I think that 
was and still remains the sort of golden prize of being an artist. To make something that you feel okay about, to put it out into the world, and to get positive feedback from peers whom you respect. That's genuine positive feedback. I mean, to me, that was kind of like the height of achievement. And so I mentioned that I was very lucky. And I think one of the ways in which I was lucky was I arrived in New York at very much the right time and the right place for someone with my interests. So when I arrived in New York, I had zero interest in Broadway or Hollywood or like any of the sort of more traditionally prized institutions. I was not interested in being commercially successful at all. I was interested in making stuff that was weird and interesting And I didn't really care about anything other than that. And so the only arena that I wanted to make my way through was this like very marginalized area of theater, which was like sort of downtown experimental theater. And it was like a pretty small community. It's not something, you know, America generally cares about. Although the scene gets quite a bit of funding from Europe because Europe does care more. Right. And within this small community, there was already at that time, which was because I arrived in 2002, there was already starting to be this real recognition in that small community for the need for diversity. So as an Asian American woman coming into the scene, wanting to do experimental theater, I found it to be a very welcoming environment. I came into a place where I was doing work that the community found interesting and the community wanted to support women of color. Let me ask you a little bit more about the community actually here, because this is the thing, as I'm sort of trying to think what it would be like to leave academia and actually make something. I mean, I don't know what your particular specialization in Shakespeare studies was, but at least in my own training, I have not been taught to think about audience very much at all, right? right? Because we historically, we don't really know what they were like and whatever. That would be the part of it that would give me, frankly, nightmares if I were forced now to like write a novel. I was like, okay, how did you learn about the audience for this? Or did it just not matter because you had this community of actors, of producers, of fellow directors and playwrights who could sort of steer you in a way? Or how did that first contact with the audience or with an audience sort of come about? Oh, well, it came about just going to see so much theater in that first year in New York where I was that audience. Mm -hmm. I was the super fan. Mm. I was the experimental theater super fan. I was surrounded by super fans because right. that's the audience for experimental theater. You know, yeah. it doesn't tend to attract random tourists off the street. Right. It tends to attract people who are sort of interested and passionate about it in the first place. So I was the audience. Mm -hmm. mm. So I understood the audience on a very deep level. It's not like writing for Broadway where you're trying to imagine what the tourist might feel like how they're going to receive what they're seeing. You know, the audience for experimental theater was me. So I knew that audience. Very cool. And I guess that's also why you have a kind of allergy towards sort of self-satisfaction on the part of any audience, right? They come in with one kind of surety. They're going to leave with that pretty badly shaken. Is that a moment of self-interrogation or is it more sort of 
ethnographic observation that during your years there, you're like, oh, this is something that is true for these people and I need to mess with that? Or is it more like, oh, this is true of me and I need to, I need to shake that loose? It's more the latter. It varies. There's a spectrum, right? Like many of my shows are very much just targeted directly towards me. And then <laughs> there are other shows where it wasn't meant to be consciousness raising for a more ignorant audience member, but you know, certain things came up in shows where the audience just had no idea what was happening. So that would need to get explained. But in general, I'm usually the target. Interesting. There's this theme throughout so much of your work where you create discomfort by playing with expectations. And it's so interesting to take in. And I guess to ask what your relationship with discomfort is, is like way too broad a question. But I guess I want to ask, what are some opportunities that you've had that have been surprising or illuminating to consider what makes you uncomfortable and what the theatrical function of discomfort might be? Well, I would love to talk about my relationship to discomfort. Let's do it. I would love to. Because, you know, I think that if I had grown up differently from how I grew up, if I had ever had the option to just be very complacent and comfortable and feel really good about myself, I would have just embraced it with open arms yeah. and I would be now someone who was actively fighting against anything that challenged my complacency. I mean, I think if complacency had ever been an option for me where I got to feel that right, way, right. I might have fallen so in love with it that I might be a champion of it now. Yeah. But because I grew up in a town with very little diversity and I grew up very lonely and isolated and I always felt other and invisible and different, I don't feel that for the first 18 years of my life, I ever had that option. I always had to feel uncomfortable in pretty much every situation I was in, always including at home, because with first-generation immigrant parents, there's also a level of discomfort where you are developing culturally in one way and they're, you know, it's just that, that intergenerational, intercultural difference with your own family. So I was pretty much just always uncomfortable for the first 18 years of my life. And I grew to just resent the complacent people so much because of the fact that their complacency made no room for me. So I think that's why I hate it so much. And then I went to Berkeley where I walked onto campus and there's all these Asian people, there's all these atheists, there's all these people who are just like me. And Berkeley would have been the perfect place for me to say, ah, like now my time has come to get to be a complacent person and be really mean to anybody who's a Christian or who's a Republican or who doesn't belong here. And I think in the beginning, I may have indulged in some of that. I can't really remember. I do remember just the surreal experience of suddenly being surrounded by like-minded people, which I had never experienced before. But I just couldn't shake those formative first 18 years of my life and knowing what it feels like to be on the other side of that. Mm. So I don't think that I could ever embrace complacency, like no matter how good it might feel. I think I just always felt I cannot become that. And so I think that that has had a huge impact on my work. And that's the reason why I'm always trying to make right. myself uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'm always pursuing things that put me in situations that make me uncomfortable. Yeah. 
Where are you in the birth order of your family, if you don't mind my asking? I'm only child. You're an only, only child. child. I am also an only child. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Because I was saying, <laughs> yeah. this comes up with surprising I'm frequency. a little obsessed with birth order. I yeah. just feel like so much illuminates from there. And that's interesting. What's your relationship to being an only child? When I was a kid, I didn't mind it because I just wanted to read alone in my room all the time and not be bothered. Whew, relatable. Yeah, I sort yeah. of understood on an intuitive level that if I had siblings, that would be much harder to do. Yeah. The older I get, the more I like really yearn for siblings, you know, especially as your parents get mm -hmm. older, you know, my father passed away. And it's in those moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, I would just give anything for someone who understands what I'm going through on this level and is going through it with me. And you know, what my friends always tell me is like, well, just having a sibling is no guarantee of that. Like no, you might have someone not. who's just you know, completely checked out or like doesn't care or doesn't feel the same way or whatever. But if you have like a good sibling, then, you know, that's something that is, is super helpful mm -hmm. as your parents mm -hmm. age. I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for, for no other reason than to sort of carry forward a memory of what it was like. You know, you don't have to agree on how to interpret the facts, but as long as the facts are sort of in two brains, rattling around two brains, there's a certain kind of power in that. Yeah. Are there ever moments where you realize that sort of your discomfort isn't someone else's discomfort and that in some way, while it led you maybe in the right direction, it didn't quite get you there or there's something that needs to be adjusted because someone else in the audience might feel a totally different kind of discomfort and this kind of heuristic of using yourself as a first test actually kind of misled you or does that, do you not find that happening very often? Oh, all the time. So I'm always just like the first test and then there's hundreds that happen after me. So when we're in rehearsals, we are constantly bringing in strangers, friends, people to be audience members. You know, in rehearsals, I write and direct at the same time. So in rehearsals, we will, as soon as we can do a run through, we'll bring in an audience member, get feedback. And then by the time we're ready for a workshop, we'll do that in front of a full audience, get feedback from sometimes, you know, a hundred people, sometimes more. Mm -hmm. I am just soliciting constantly diverse feedback from diverse people. And, you know, the point is never to provoke the same response in everyone. It's just to uncover patterns of response and interact with them mm -hmm. in the work. So we're not expecting a proper response from the audience. Right. We want to know what responses are out there and how we want to interact with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you, what's like a thing, I mean, you can give me a specific example or just like the type of thing where you get a response kind of a little late in the game, you think, oh shit, we got to go back to the drawing board. Like what, what's the kind of audience mm -hmm. response that's just like, oh no, 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 this can't be. The worst experience we ever had was with an early workshop of The Shipment, mm -hmm. which was a show made in collaboration with Black cast members. And we did an early workshop of that that did not go the way that we expected at all. The cast got excited about making a predominantly white audience uncomfortable with stereotypes. And the audience ended up really loving the stereotypes and thinking, oh, yeah. thinking that the show was an invitation for them to celebrate racism together with the cast. And it was so terrible. It really is like the worst example of that that's ever mm. taken place. And we completely changed that show as a result. Mm -hmm. But I think that we had insufficiently tested. I think that's when the testing started was after mm -hmm. that disastrous workshop because I just thought, oh, well, we would know 
I just listened to my cast, but they were inside it and they weren't outside it. So I realized mm-hmm. like if you're inside of something, you don't know what it seems like right. and what it's going to seem like in front of an audience that's very different from you. Right. And that's what the testing and feedback gathering phase is for, right? I mean, that sounds like a good use of that function. And it's also... I feel like part of what you were asking more obliquely, Adrian, is sort of how an artist distinguishes between good faith and bad faith critique and unhelpful and and helpful feedback. And it sounds like in that case, that was helpful, useful feedback, even if it was tricky, you know? Well, I always tell my students that the most useful feedback is overlapping feedback. Yeah. So if you get the same feedback from more than one person, that's immediately a time to prick up your ears because you're always going to get just random stuff. Like somebody will say, I don't know why this character loves wearing blue all the time. I really hate blue, right? That's the kind of feedback you might get from someone, which is just an issue of taste, something idiosyncratic to that person. I try to shut those things out for the most part. But when you've got especially like three or four or five people saying the same thing. There's definitely something Mm -hmm. going on that's worth looking at. a little bit back into like your earlier history. How did you discover and name your own feminism and how has it informed your work? I think that for many years, and I've talked to other BIPOC women about this and they had similar experiences when they're young. I actually had a great resentment toward feminism sure. because I looked at white women and thought, oh my God, I would kill to have what they have. For me, racism is so much worse as a day-to-day experience Mm -hmm. than sexism for Mm -hmm. me personally, Mm -hmm. that I don't have room for that. And feminism seemed like something separate for me. It felt like something separate from race. You know, I had no concept of intersectionality when I was young. And, you know, as I got older and I went to Berkeley and everything, like those things started breaking down. But when I made Untitled Feminist Show, that was when I thought it's really time for me to confront these old feelings about feminism and actually like work through them and see what's really there. And I collaborated with this amazing cast and we actually, we just talked for weeks and weeks. We just talked about feminism. What we came up with collectively, which is now just has become a part of me, was that for us, feminism is about a lot of things, but at the core of it, for us in particular, was this idea of gender fluidity Mm -hmm. and this idea that a human can embody so many different ways of being and that whatever bodies we were born with should never be a limiting factor Mm. in what we are allowed to be in the world. And we felt that that was true of anyone, however they were born in whatever bodies they were born in. So for us, that was kind of at the core of feminism. That still feels to me like 
a really important aspect of feminism that I'll defend until I die. <laughs> I mean, say a little bit more about that show, because I think it's so interesting. Untitled Feminist Show, it has so much theoretical heft. And then in the end, it's wordless. You say in the beginning, it's not a show about feminism. It's a show that proceeds in a feminist way. Has that mattered to you as well? The fact that sometimes these things are more easily instantiated or more easily performed than they are explained for the umpteenth time? Oh, it was just the fact that none of us were feminist scholars. So I'm sure we would have loved to have been able to come up with some new take or defined feminism in some new way and contributed to that dialogue, but we just mm. couldn't. So, you know, so we were like, what can we do? And we were artists and we could create something that was feminist and we could imagine a sort of utopian way of being. That was the only reason why we went in that direction. But to me, that testifies so beautifully to how collaboration itself is intrinsically feminist and intrinsically intersectional. And that's something that really fascinates me about your approach so consistently to collaborating with actors, period, and specifically with actors from different backgrounds than you. Like, can you talk a little bit about your approach to collaboration? And like, do you see that as a feminist value? I guess if you define feminism very broadly, mm -hmm. then sure. You know, I mean, to me, it just seems like a human value. Sure. I think I was not totally specific in what I actually meant. Okay. What I was actually saying is that I think that the auteur model presumes this very male gendered hierarchical head in like supernatural control of everything. And the reason I'm proposing that collaboration has a feminist value to it is because it disrupts that sort of vertical hierarchical model that at least in filmmaking is also explicitly paramilitary. Right. So that's, that's more where I was coming from. I agree with your conclusion that it's not exclusively feminist and also just humanist. I mean, I think that for me, I feel that the people whose bodies are on stage should have agency over what they're doing on the stage, which is easy for me to say because I can rewrite the text and I can direct it however I want. So I actually have mm -hmm. the ability to do that without getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the performances are different when the performers have that when they got to approve what they're saying and doing, and when they got to say, no, I don't want to do this, I want to do something else, mm -hmm. where they are put in a position from day one where they know that they're going to have to claim ownership in some way over everything mm -hmm. that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So they better object, you know, if they find themselves doing something that they don't want to claim on stage. And I just love the way those performances are because they're just different you know, there's like mm -hmm. this level of commitment that I've just gotten sort of addicted to as a director. You know, I want my actors to feel that way about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Also, people sometimes ask me, not in a confrontational way, but just more in a curious way, what makes you feel like you can collaborate with people from different identity groups? Mm. Like what gives you the right to do that. Right. And I've asked that question to people I've collaborated with from different identity groups. And the answer that they've given me, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that if I were making a show about Korean American identity, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could give the actors that kind of agency because I would say, I have my own opinions and experiences and feelings about all of this. Mm -hmm. And I'm the writer and I'm the director and I want to make what I want to make. When I'm working with all Black cast members and the show is dealing with their identities, I just literally can't mm -hmm. do that. I just don't have 
the information and I don't have the ability to do that in the same way that I didn't have the ability to Mm. make this groundbreaking theory of feminism through my show. You know, I just can't do it. And so that enables the actors to have this agency that Mm -hmm. I don't think that they could have with someone from their own identity group Hmm. running the show. And Mm -hmm. I really, like, I've really thought about it. And I just, I don't think I could do a Korean American show where I collaborated in the same way. I would just want to tell my stories and do things my way. (laughs) There are wonderful moments in the feminist show where instructions are so capacious in how it imagines the potential bodies that could be slotted into those roles and sort of accommodates like, well, if people are comfortable, this is what should happen, but it's totally understood that if it can't, it made me think through just how many assumptions go into something like stage directions normally about who is going to be playing that role, right? And the very gesture of opening it up in that way struck me as kind of significant in its own right. And I think it's related to that thing of being shut out Mm. for so many years. There's a desire to not shut people out and make them feel silenced and invisible Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. like their opinion doesn't matter. I was heavily relating to some of what you were saying both about like the general alienation of your upbringing and about the particular condition of being an only child so with the disclaimer that this is a question that comes directly from my own experience have you found modes of sibling making in collaboration oh sibling making in collaboration i guess i wouldn't know what that means because (laughs) from what I understand (laughs) from the research I've done into what it's like to have siblings, a lot of that seems to revolve around sort of teasing and rivalry and play fighting and horseplay. And there's a specific kind of intimacy to Mm -hmm. sibling relationships that I don't associate with my collaborators, I guess, because I don't think as a director, you can ever be a sibling to your actors because it's your responsibility to make sure that they're okay. Mm -hmm. And I guess there are sibling relationships that are like that, where it's your responsibility to make sure. So I guess, yeah, I don't know. Like there's something about being in charge of actors that makes you unable to be the goofy playfellow. You sort of have to be always looking out for everyone. It's your name on the insurance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I guess I'm wondering now about that in terms of the agency that you talk about. Because of course, like for all the freedom that you allot in collaboration, there are also moments in the plays, and there have to be kind of, that sort of foreclose the reinterpretation that someone could do with this work. There's a certain leeway, but then within that, right? I was thinking about a lot of the dancing that happens in your plays, right? There is a dance at the end of Straight White Men and like, it doesn't say the pop song, but it says what kind of pop song it should be. It's a lighthearted example, but like, I guess it does mean that once you sort of step out of the room, agency of people putting on these works is going to be kind of curtailed. What about sort of collaboration in time, given that you came to the theater as someone who was collaborating with someone who's 500 years dead, What does collaboration look like when you're no longer actively in the room? How do you feel when writing these instructions that are essentially Mm. the terms of collaboration for a future director, a future producer? I think that stage directions, there are a lot of directors who just ignore them on principle. 
which would be difficult for Untitled Mm -hmm. Film to show to ignore them completely because it's all stage directions. But I think that from what I understand, some directors, they take stage directions very seriously and they adhere to them. Mm -hmm. And for other directors, I feel like the stage directions are collaborative only insofar as those audience members giving me Mm -hmm. their random opinions are collaborative. Mm -hmm. You know, you take what's Mm -hmm. useful and you leave behind what's not useful. Given that the audience is such an important part in how you conceptualize these works and and that their investments and their reactions are a really big part of how you think about how to put together the show in the first place, have you noticed any changes over time? Have you, you know, what are sort of the most significant transformations in that audience that you've seen since you started making theater? The biggest transformation I saw was we did Straight White Men. We did a remount of Straight White Men in Chicago at Steppenwolf. Mm-hmm. And the audience was, you know, largely older and white. And so many of them did mm-hmm. not know what privilege meant mm-hmm. as it's popularly used now. They thought of privilege as maybe something that a rich person has. White privilege was a foreign concept. So we actually had to explain wow. that at the beginning of the show just so that they could even follow it at all. And when we did it on Broadway, there were many more people at that point Hmm. who had heard the word privileged used in the context of, you know, race and gender in addition to class. And the original production of Straight White Men at the Public Theater in New York, basically the history of that show from its first performance to its last the audiences for the first workshops Mm. of that show had absolutely no idea what any of the characters were talking about at any time. The earliest performances, people's responses to the show were, oh, it was such an interesting family show with a lot of gobbledygook that they would say that I didn't know what they were saying. And then by the time we brought it to Broadway, identity-based discourse and the discourse of privilege had entered into the mainstream enough that more people were more familiar with it. But that was like the most sort of interesting journey. Can you date, Mark? Yes. At the public, it was 2014. The very first workshop was in April 2013. Mm -hmm. And then it had its world Mm -hmm. premiere in April 2014 and its New York premiere in November 2014. 2014 was Ferguson, was it not? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then Steppenwolf was 2017 and then Broadway was 2018. So that was the journey. Oh, okay. So this is actually between 2014 and 2018, not between six months and 2014. But still, yeah, I mean, it's easy to see how much changed in those windows you just ate, Mark. That's fascinating. And the composition of the theater audiences in both of these locations was kind of similar, like demographically? Or would you also say younger people show up in New York? Was it a more diverse audience in New York? I I don't want to assume anything about Chicago audiences. The audiences for Broadway were surprisingly diverse. I think the theater actively was courting, was using the show to try to get younger, more diverse audiences. And so just the way that they were doing Mm -hmm. outreach and ticket sales were all conducive to that. So those were some of the most diverse theater houses I've had was actually weirdly on Broadway. Well, that's funny because then that does create again, kind of this difficulty for you to imagine your own audience, because, you know, there is a little bit of a presumptive whiteness, right, in the way straight white men is sort of addressed to an audience that will be kind of freaked out by the fact that that's an identity category at all. Well, if you have a suddenly a very diverse audience, people may have actually very little problem with it. So I would definitely not call it a very diverse audience. I would call it a relatively diverse audience, which is not that diverse. (laughs) I guess I wanted to wind down by 
asking you about your return to academia after having such a dramatic initial like early departure from it. Like what brought you back into the academy? How do you feel about being here? How do you think about being a teaching artist? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I had a lot of apprehension, but Stanford basically just said, do you want to come? And they just made it so easy. And all I had to do was say yes. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, why not try it and just see? My first year here was actually like really difficult because I just, I did not know that, you know, a class with 30 people would be unmanageable in doing the type of thing that I wanted to do. And there was like a steep learning curve. Even in my first year at Stanford, I just immediately loved teaching. I tried to sort of collaborate with the students the way that I had done at Brown and NYU. And that was just, it's just very hard to do that when you don't have a set production that you're working towards. So that model just Mm -hmm. failed completely. But I was also teaching playwriting. Now I just exclusively teach playwriting. Like I don't try to collaborate with the students anymore, but like the playwriting teaching my first year, I mean, I think the thing that I loved the most about it that is actually so helpful to me as a writer is over the years, I just developed so many neuroses around writing to the point where Hmm. even the idea of writing would be enough to give me really debilitating anxiety. And, you know, I would just be heaping abuse on myself for not writing, you know, like just my Hmm. history with writing is, has just been so tormented in part because of academia and the pressure of that. And I came into Stanford with a very fraught relationship with writing in my playwriting classes. I just said my goal in this class My number one goal is to help the students develop a healthy relationship with their writing. After like sort of a rocky beginning, I realized that that was the most important thing Mm -hmm. to me. I've structured all of my teaching around that. And just to see by the end of that first year, I remember there was a, a week where a student had been just blocked the entire week. And all the writing that they'd done, they said, had been horrible and not what they wanted. And they just had like a really, really terrible writing week. And I asked them, well, how did you feel about that? And they just kind of shrugged and said, ah, it'll get better next week. And to me in that moment, that was like such a happy moment because I wouldn't be able to do that. Like if I'd spent an entire week trying to write and it went horribly and I wrote terrible things, like I would feel terrible. But the fact that that student, Mm -hmm. you know, they said, well, it wasn't fun, but whatever, like it was just one week and it'll get better. Just to have that attitude. I was just like, you are to me like an Olympic athlete of writing right now to be able to struggle necessarily because they were trying to figure something out like they were struggling through something and they did figure it out but to be able to go through that process and not beat up on yourself and not feel tortured over it like that is some olympic level writing there and i was just so impressed and when i saw that my students were all universally doing better than i was with that i just thought this is like one of the most rewarding things a person can do and you know when they come up with these incredible inventive things that i could actually see becoming the next sleep no more you know it's It's just so exciting because it's, of course, just the beginning seeds of it. But I can see it. Like, I can see it in the future becoming something greater. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's really nothing like it. 
Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you found that to be true. I mean, I think that there's a kind of intensity to the educational experience, right, where it's so easy to shrink away from this kind of challenge because there's all these other things that you're doing, especially in a kind of college environment. I'm really thrilled that you're able to meet the students on that footing. I mean, it took a while. I didn't like come into it instantaneously knowing how to do that. Like I definitely made mistakes. Like at the end of that first year of teaching, all my colleagues would ask me like, how did it go? How was the teaching? And I just said to everyone, it was, it was really hard. It was really hard. It was really messy. I made a lot of mistakes and I learned a lot. But where I got to by the end of that year was yeah. for me like a really wonderful and rewarding place. And I think that that's kind of the trajectory that the shows take as well. Yeah. And that's writing, right? In the beginning, it's just it's just bad. You don't know what you're doing and you're finding your way and you're trying to learn. And I think it's like that with everything. I'm not surprised to hear that it's going really well now because I do think that an allergy towards complacency or to complacency is pretty important for teaching as well. I think self-satisfied teaching is probably the worst kind of teaching anyone can do, right? A teaching that's always a little unsettled, always unsure if it's getting its point across, always responsive to even the seismographically to the smallest subsets and in the, the people that it's trying to reach. I'm not surprised that it went well, is all I'm saying. I guess I'd never thought about putting on a class being like putting on a play, but in this respect, I guess they kind of are alike. You got to read a room, man. Yeah, got to read the room. Yeah, I mean, the biggest lesson I had to learn is that students are so much younger than you. You know what I mean? Like, it's oh, just yeah. that no, the, you have to be careful with students in a way that I had basically learned not to be careful with my collaborators for, mm -hmm. you know, 15 years or whatever. And just learning how to be careful because there's a certain way of being careful where you do a disservice to the person yeah, you're being right. careful with, you know, and then there's a way of being careful where you're like, I'm in a relationship of power right. to this person within an institutional setting that was founded by white people for white people and is just sort of like laden with the history and continuance of white right. supremacist practices. You know, like that was something that I was too ignorant of coming into it after working in all these downtown theaters with my own theater company that I ran with my producer where, you know, our practices, we determined what they were. And I wasn't an employee of a larger structure that was operating in some mm -hmm. <laughs> some way that it was going to operate that I wasn't even totally aware of. Right, where your artistic practice becomes an extension of the practices of that institution, loaded with all the power relations and all the hierarchies and inequalities that are in that institution, not by accident, but by design. Yeah, There's so much institutional scaffolding to everything you just said. And there's also something really poignant in its artistic center too, which is the if you are a teaching artist, one of your primary responsibilities is to model what that good faith critique looks like and how to deliver it in a way that is both honest and not crushing. And that is real. I mean, I feel that as an artist and as a teacher myself, like that's hard. <laughs> that's, that's a really tough line to walk. And I think especially for me, because like anybody who's collaborated with me will be able to tell you that to me, the greatest gift anyone can give me is basically the harshest criticism they can give. You know, like that's what I mm -hmm. live for as an artist, but I've learned that I may be idiosyncratic 
in that way. Like I have mm-hmm. had experiences where colleagues asked me for feedback and I was like bringing them my most precious gift. And it's like a cat giving a dead mouse to its owner where they're just like, actually, <laughs> like yeah, I, needed, right. I needed more support. Right. I need affirmation first and then you could do the other stuff. Right, right. So that's something that I've learned over the years. But there was kind of this thing where I love getting really straightforward feedback. And I've been in situations where I was getting it from like a hundred people at once Mm -hmm. about how much they hated what I did. And I'm like eagerly writing it all down. But I think, you know, that's my process. And I think most people don't have that process. And so the way that I teach now is the complete opposite of that. Like I actually don't give my students any feedback that's outside of the context of a question Mm. that they've asked that the whole class Mm. is responding to. And like I tell my students at the beginning of every quarter now that one of the best things they can do is just dismiss something that I've said or contradict me. And it's like my favorite, uh, my favorite moment in any class is where I state my opinion about something and some student just very dismissively says no that doesn't work because of blah 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 and everybody else nods and we just move on and like nobody even thinks about it those moments always make me really happy Mm. we should mention that of course this podcast functions according to the same principle (laughs) so please don't leave one star reviews (laughs) i I didn't want people to sort of get uh, all excited about what young jean is telling us and be like i think they'll grow from uh from (laughs) really tearing them to shreds on itunes podcast please please do not love us by taking us to the Woodhouse in this occasion. <laughs> there's one more thing that I think is really important to say. Go, go. You know, there's a conversation that I've been having with my actors. A theater approached me about potentially doing some remounts of some of my shows, which is, you know, mm-hmm. not public and I can't talk about it. But they came to me about remounting some shows that were built collaboratively. And one conversation that I had with my actors when discussing the remount was the question of crediting. Right. Because basically, I think the rules have always been actors collaborate on the script, but the person who writes it down is the writer and they are credited as sole author. And I think that that practice is starting to come into question. Like I know that Hamilton actors got some sort of royalty Mm. for Hamilton. I I don't know if it was an authorial royalty, but some sort of royalty as co-creators of that piece. I sense that those rules are starting to shift. So that's a conversation that I started having with my actors as soon as the theater approached me. So with those shows that were made so collaborative, you know, that question of crediting is now something that we've all been discussing. And I, and to me, it's, I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think that the theater industry probably doesn't want to have it, you know, and, and I think it is complicated because playwrights get paid so little that if a playwright has to share their already meager royalties, which are often less than what the actors get paid anyway, with the actors, then what is that going to do mm-hmm. to the field of playwriting? I think that there's something about getting paid so poorly to begin with and then having your pay reduced even further. Right. That is basically a problem for anyone without a trust fund or or an academic job or whatever. So I think that that's one of those really scary conversations yeah. that I think the theater industry doesn't want to have. But that's a conversation that I'm starting to have. And that, for sure. you know, I think is a really important one. Really interesting. I'm thinking of Richard Linklater credited Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy on... 
I think the second two of the trilogy, but not mm-hmm. the first one. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, I've never heard of that, but that's... I believe that's true, but that to me represents kind of the evolution of the way of thinking that you're describing there. Yeah, but I think that's a really important thing to bring up, you know, with all of this talk of collaboration, because it's just a conversation that people aren't having. For sure. But theater is just so scrambling and desperate right now. Mm-hmm with so many things. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with theater. Yeah, I was probably scrambling before there were no more mm-hmm. theaters. Now I'm imagining it's uh, conversation has gotten a little bit more urgent uh, in the last couple of months. I would not want to be running a theater right now. Yeah. An institutional nonprofit theater. Like right. I, that would be terrifying. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Truly final question. I guess just in thinking about the dearth of live performances in all of our lives right now and like how intensely I'm feeling that and I'm sure others are too. Can you describe and sort of like reenact for us one of like the most powerful or beautiful live performance experiences you've ever had? Oh my gosh. It was a show that ran, I think in 2002, it was called Placebo Sunrise and it played at Trishama in New York, which I think no longer exists, but it ran just forever. It just kept getting extended. It was the first job in theater I ever had. Like I got paid $20 total to run the sound and light board for the entire run of the extension and uh, was thrilled to get the $20. I was not expecting that. It remains to this day like the most transcendent amazing theater experience I've ever had. It was by a company called the National Theater of the United States of America. And it was just, it's a bunch of people working and vacationing on a cruise ship. And it's just the most astonishing thing I've ever seen. And it was one of the first things I saw in New York. And I just thought, oh my gosh, all theater is going to be like this. And was really sadly disappointed because I've never seen anything like that again. But Placebo Sunrise Mm. by the National Theater of the United States of America. And they have pretty good recording of it that I think Stanford should acquire because it's just spectacular. And everyone just went bananas over it at the time. Experimental theater at that time was just so marginalized that it never went much further, but it was, it was just glorious. It was so surreal Mm -hmm. and weird and Mm. just beautiful, absolutely beautiful and hilarious. I've got a lot of pent up rage right now. So it sounds like I should be directing it towards getting Stanford to acquiring that. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is Arlenir Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following products, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns, Casper Mattresses, and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. (laughs) 